Hi there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Some Other Sphere. If you enjoy it, please leave a rating on your preferred podcast platform or like and share it on social media, as it all really helps to promote the show. If you'd like to support the upkeep of the podcast as well, you can donate via Ko-fi. Go to ko-fi.com forward slash some other sphere podcast to find out more. Thank you again, and now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is author Simon Miles, who joined me to talk about his recent book, The Map and the Manuscript. This debut work documents an investigation of more than 20 years into the Affair of Wren, a tangle of puzzles that has fascinated researchers and readers alike for half a century. A minor riddle of local history, centred on a tiny village in the south of France, became a global phenomenon, yet its greater secrets have remained tightly sealed. Amongst a sequence of breakthrough insights, the map and the manuscript reveals, for the first time, the traces of a remarkable artefact of the ancient world, a geometrical complex laid out with impressive accuracy and at large scale between certain peaks, churches and chateaux in the landscape of the Pyrenees Mountains. This discovery leads to a far-reaching exploration across a rich expanse of topics, from sacred geography to French poetry, from alchemy to dreams, from the Temple of Delphi to the streets of Paris, from hidden designs in old books to secret codes in manuscripts. In the interview, I talked with Simon about how he became interested in these mysteries and the key aspects of his research and investigation which have made a significant contribution to a wider reappraisal of the capabilities of landscape architects in the ancient world. It made for a fascinating discussion. Enjoy! Simon, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you very much, Rick. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here and thanks for having me on. For people who might not be overly familiar with the mysteries connected to Rennes-le-Château and that part of France. What's the main narrative? Well, uh, it's it's really a nest of mysteries. It's it, it sort of spirals off in in many different directions. But at the heart of the whole conglomeration of stories is a strange story about a priest in the 1890s who took over the church in a very small village, this village called Rennes-le-Chateau, down, down in the south of France. And the short version of the story is that he was doing some renovations in the church. He discovered something. And after that, he seemed to come in into essentially un, unlimited wealth. He had, he was able to spend money without uh, without any hesitation. He, he embarked on a huge building program. He re, rebuilt the church, built himself a lovely home, dined on the finest foods. Uh, and there it is. To this day, how he came into this money has never been fully satisfactorily explained. But the story has had all kinds of layers added onto it, and uh, it ended up becoming a kind of a hit in the 1980s with a book called The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, which many of your readers will have come across, I'm sure. And then the story went even further viral than that and inspired Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, so one of the biggest bestsellers of all time. But it, in, each, in each time, more and more has been added onto it. So the story is... Very difficult to, to pin down, but starts with this mysterious story of somebody getting rich. That That's the, the shortest version. Right, okay. How did you become interested in the mysteries connected with Rennes-le-Chateau? Well, it started when I watched a documentary right back in the 1970s by a chap called Henry Lincoln, who, again, I'm sure many of your listeners will have heard of. He was a BBC 
uh, writer and and producer and made a series of documentaries on this whole topic. And I happened to see one many years ago as a teenager, but it wasn't until years later I came across a book that he'd written called The Holy Place. And And in this, he introduced an entirely different aspect to the mystery. This book, and there are several other books on the topic, purports to introduce the discovery of alignment in the landscape between churches and ancient chateaus and mountains in the area. And when I first came across this book, I, I, I thought it was a very strange business, very fascinating business, and it kind of drew me in. And at some point I decided that, that I was going to check check these guys' claims out for myself. So that's what I did. I got the maps, I got these books, and I started checking for myself whether there in fact, in fact were alignments in, in the landscape between these these various features. That's how it, that's how it started, and that was back in the nineties. Okay, and so how did you start doing that? What? How did you determine what might be considered a genuine uh, alignment? Well, that's that's right. That was the first thing I did was was, was go through these these books. The Holy Place is one of them, and several others, and and just really check whether these alignments on the map held up. And and to my well surprise, I guess I found that they mostly do. These alignments that Henry and others had found were genuine. Here's four or five churches. You mark them on the map. You get your ruler and you rule a line. And all five or six churches fall on the line. Now, then the question is, well, to what extent is that random? To what extent can we expect to find occasionally examples of, of such thing? But but the first thing was that there were way more examples than than it seemed to me that, that, that random chance could account for. So the first few years were pretty messy, um, but I did really wrestle with these problems. What If an alignment looks geometrically like it's good, how could we be certain that it actually was intended at some point by, by the builders who put it together? So uh, to sort of cut to the, to the chase here, I ended up sending it myself, uh, 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 as it were, a, a question. I said, okay, if some of these lines are real, well, well what would the first one have been? If, if this really was a sensible program, then where would it have started? And it seemed to me that a good place to start would be meridian lines, that is north-south lines. So I set out looking for any examples of these alignments between sites that was a north-south line. I had no expectation of success. I just set out to do that. And to my amazement, I discovered several of these immediately. As soon as I started looking for them, I discovered the two that I found at the beginning. One was four mountains in a perfect north-south alignment. The other one was 10 mountains, mountain peaks in a perfect north-south alignment. And that's the point that I realized that there was something real going on here and began devoting myself in earnest to to try to unravel this mystery and so um when you discover alignments like that what is it that terminates them i from your own research into this subject matter are they are they ending because that's where the 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 alignment in the landscape naturally ends or are they ending there on purpose because the the area that they're relative to is kept by the length of that alignment well the 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 territory itself the geography of of this particular landscape is the foothills of the pyrenees so it's not the high mountains of the pyrenees and it's not the flat plains of france it's in between and if you were setting out to do this sort of work it's kind of ideal there are lots of peaks and valleys of moderate height you can you can get to the tops of the peaks and you can get to the valley. So it's 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 an area that, that you can get elevation quite readily in lots of places. And and what I found with many of these lines is that, is that they terminate on mountains at the other end or, or they terminate at least on high points. And so I, I started to, to get to get this sense of high points for sight lines and then in the valleys below these churches and chateaus. And over time, I, I slowly started to realise that these sight lines between the high points were very much part of this system, that there's literally a communication network in this area that's been there for a very long time uh, to enable people to send messages from high points 
on peaks across valleys and, and across across the countryside. Now, that, that's part of, of the emerging answer to this, that there's a very practical uh, aspect to it. Um, but, yeah, does that answer the question? So they, 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 they tend to finish either on mountaintops or on other high points that, that are points of view or, or lookouts like that. Yeah, and so do we have an idea of how long ago this network might have been set up? Well, I have actually, and, and though this the book that I've written, and the map and the manuscript is, is the name of it, doesn't go too much into this element. Um, but what I have discovered is that these alignments, in many cases, are clustered on major compass angles, so the meridians, uh, 30 degrees, 60 degrees, 90 degrees, and then in, in many cases, they also point to the rising and setting of significant stars, and because the stars change slowly, their rising point on the horizon, I have been able to use this to sort of come up with, with some some historical times when it looks like th this might have been put together because particular alignments were pointing at particular stars on the horizon on particular major angles. So, for example, Sirius is one of them. And Sirius at this particular place was rising at a significant angle of 120 degrees and setting at 240 degrees. Many of the, these alignments are pointing in that direction. So slowly, slowly I've, I've come to put together this picture of alignments between mountains that are literally pointing at the rising and setting of significant stars. So in terms of the dates, I think it's, it's the second and third millennia, like 20, 2500 BC, there was a lot of work, 1600 BC, there was a lot of work, but it was still even being, being put into, into place when the Romans were there in, in, in the first century. So as, as amazing as this sounds, over several thousand years, I believe that people were attending to this very interesting and complex set of alignments that have been painstakingly installed into the mountains uh, in the south of France. It is an incredible thing to think about when you describe it like that. Yeah. I, I didn't realise it might go back that far. Uh, in, in the book, you talk a little bit about the mindset required to undertake a project such as this and mm. it's very different to to how we imagine doing something like that now i mean we have a literal maps for example and um I, I know in the book you talk about how a lot of this would have had to be held in the person's mind in terms of how they measured things did your research give you more of an insight into how they did that and how it who it might work for do you do you get a sense that this was a system that was for everybody or for an elite or or is there just not the information available for that well uh what i wanted to do was try and put the, the people that have investigated these lines in the lines in the landscape in this area have tried to tie it all together with the renault chateau mystery and you know people come up with elaborate treasure hunt and treasure maps and all kinds of really crazy things which have led nowhere people have been trying to do this for decades and, and, it, and it's ended up nowhere what i tried to do was look for other other cultural and historical discussions into which this sort of discovery might fit and what i gravitated towards was was work of several people who have discovered zodiacs in the ancient world in other words in plato even talks about this the idea that you set up a city and the city is a representation of the heavens above and so to induce order and harmony in, in, in on the earth what they tried to do was lay out their landscapes as reflections of the heavens and one of the things they would do was for example a place like delphi they would arrange the landscape around Delphi into 12 segments and allocate those to the signs of the zodiac. So, so they would have these images of the zodiac around sacred centers and, and uh, important cult sites and cities. Now, the Greeks did this, but it was, it was practiced very widely right, right throughout the Near and Middle East and, 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 and the Mediterranean. And one particular researcher I found was this Professor Professor Jean Richet, who, who's written a number of books in French, only one of them has been translated into English, uh, who has discovered these zodiacs in, in, in Greece and in other places. And slowly, uh, 
I started to get a sense that that what what we have here in France was was an, an example of, of what the Greeks and some of the other ancients were doing uh, in other parts of, of the Mediterranean. Hmm. And in in the modern day, are there clues in place names? Um, are there are there legends that have survived into the present day that indicate that that might be the case? Well, in in terms of places like like Greece uh, and and around Delphi and these other sites that Professor Richet and others had identified, that that's exactly the case. He was able to find, for example, the cities. The city might be, for example, in the region allocated to Cancer. He looks at the coins for that city and they have the crab on the reverse of the coins. So he was finding temple design, names of places, coins, uh, all kinds, vases, all kinds of cultural relics which were reflecting the symbolism of the of the zodiac. Now, if I move across to, to France and Rennes-le-Chateau, uh, the traces of the zodiac have not been left in in the landscape so much. But but what has happened is, in the midst of this Rennes-le-Chateau mystery, is a very strange poem called Le Serpent Rouge, and it was written in the sixties. It, it's anonymous, and it's a it, it talks about a zodiac in a landscape, and it's it's a, it's a poem, a very strange surrealist poem about a person taking a walk in a landscape that has been configured as a zodiac. Now, to cut a long story short, um, what I discovered is is I discovered one of these zodiacs around this village called Renlaban, uh, and I discovered that this poem, Le Serpent Rouge, that's what it's been written about. It's been written about this zodiac uh, in the landscape. It's made up of these al- alignments. Um, so somebody has known about it and this information has persisted into modern times and part of this material has been got caught up in this Renault Chateau mystery and has been lingering around the edges of it without people being able to understand some of the actual physical basis in the landscape of the of the origin of, of some of these myths that have that have brought up and have come up right yeah and um Talking of uh, Le Serpent Rouge, which I'm, I'm guessing is the manuscript in the title. <laughs> um, well, that's right, yes. Yeah. Um, that has a connection to the Priory of Sion, which is a, a, a an organisation which has a strong links to the more famous aspects of the Rennes Chateau mystery. Right. So, so this, the Pride of Sion, they've, they've become really notorious. It's, it's all a bit of a strange story, but they were active in the 1960s in France. And this whole myth has risen up around them. I think there's a lot more smoke and mirrors there than, than, than reality. They, they claim to be an ancient secret society and all that stuff's been pretty much pulled apart. They, they were nowhere near as sort of true and ancient as they claimed. What, what they were was a sort of a small group of esoteric, literary pranksters if, if i can use that word and in the 1960s they took the story of the priest who got rich and they produced a whole bunch of documents about this and and in, injected that into the the culture of the time via various books and 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 other materials and this le serpent rouge poem was part of that um but Whilst an army of researchers have pulled apart what the Priory of Sion have done and all the rest of their of, of, of their materials, this Le Serpent Rouge poem has remained mysterious in the midst of that because it's quite unlike any of the other materials. It doesn't seem to fit with anything else and no one's really been under, able to understand what it was doing in the midst of this other crazy Priory of Sion, treasure hunts, bloodline, kind of crazy stories. Uh, so, so yeah, the, the the Serpent Rouge was part of it, but was has also been quite a separate, quite a separate element that's no no one's ever really been been able to make head or tail of. Mm, okay, so can you just talk a little bit more about the the poem itself, it, its structure, and the important motifs that that are within it? Sure. So, so the poem is, it's a prose poem. It's only a couple of pages long. It has 13 stanzas and each stanza is allocated to a sign of the zodiac. So there's 13 signs, which rather than 12, which is a bit more typical of European astrology, they, they tend to have an extra sign, Ophiuchus, which 
is often considered the second half of Scorpio. So it's really divided into 12 still, but Scorpio is divided into, 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 into two to make 13. And it, 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 in this poem, this unnamed protagonist goes for a walk in this unnamed landscape. There's all these alchemical references. Uh, he, he, he meets this mysterious red serpent and, 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 and has some kind of battle with it. It's all very mythical and it's all very difficult to grasp what's going on. And no one's been able to identify who wrote it or who the protagonist is. Now, when I started reading this back at the beginning, I, I really, I wasn't trying to solve it. I really didn't think it was going to have anything to do with what I was looking for. But I did notice one thing about this poem when I first read it. I noticed that there were a bunch of references in it to Carl Jung's book, Psychology and Alchemy, which is a very fascinating book about Jung's take on alchemy. And I noticed that there was a couple of lines and words and passages which seemed to me to have been taken from that book, which I happened to be reading at the time completely separately. Well, it slowly dawned on me the realisation that who'd ever written this poem must have been familiar with, with Jung's work. And this was a niggling thing in the back of my head for many, many years. Well, again, to cut a long story short, and the long story is in the book, but the short story is that I eventually, to my amazement, figured out who wrote the poem. And the poem Le Serpent Rouge was actually written by this professor, Jean Rocher, this academic uh, who had discovered these zodiacs and other uh, uh, landscape alignments in, in France, in, in, in Greece. Now he was a—he was actually his his area of expertise was French poetry. He was an expert on the French poet Gerard de Naval, who was a poet in the nineteenth century. So uh, it turns out that this this Jean Rocher, this professor, had some tangential involvement with the Prior of Sion writers in the nineteen sixties, and this has never before been discussed or already known in the Rennes Chateau literature. This this Jean Rocher is separately, you know, famous in his own world, but there's been no suggestion up to now that that he was involved in this very strange set of events around the Rennes Chateau mystery. So this is kind of one of the one of the original things that I brought forth in my book is identifying for the first time or suggesting an identification for the first time of the true author of this poem. And with that tumbles out this zodiac that's hidden in the landscape which which he also discovered so that he discovered the zodiac that i've rediscovered and then wrote this poem to as it were leave a record of this zodiac uh in the public domain uh, but no one's been able ever able to reconstruct the zodiac because the the clues of the poem are, are, are just too obscure i just for me, I discovered the Zodiac first completely accidentally without intending to discover it as, as, as the origin of the poem. And then to my amazement, I discovered that that, that when the Zodiac is applied to, to Le Serpent Rouge, all the clues within, within the poem pan out perfectly uh, in terms of matching the landscape to, to the Zodiac. Mm-hmm. So at, at what point did you discover the Serpent Rouge as part of your own research? Because the early alignments that you discovered, like we were saying, they indicate they probably had a, a practical reason. You know, they're, there's a line of sight and they're perhaps part of a communication network. Whereas a, a zodiac is is a, a more spiritual, metaphysical concept. It can still have real world applications, but it feels slightly different to the more practical concept we were discussing earlier. So when you discovered the serpent rouge, did you consider that the alignments you were finding might be part of a of a zodiac? Well, I wouldn't say that the, the alignments that the meridians are, are are necessarily part of the zodiac, but what I have come to to the conclusion is that all all of these lines together form you know, almost a giant machine. And, and I use that word kind of carefully because I don't, I don't really mean it in, in, in the modern sense that, that we think of a machine, but, but a, an integrated system that, that does a, a lot of different things that are integrated together. And all of them, if you like, gather together under the heading of creating a harmony between the heavens and the earth, creating a way of putting a structure on the landscape that enables it to be matched 
readily to the sky so that the ordering of the heavens can then come down and, and order the earth. Now, obviously, in the modern world, we, we don't really think of that as being an important thing to do or, or even something that will produce real-world results. But it seems that the ancients had a different view, that the ancients felt that it was worth expending huge amounts of effort and energy to reshape the surface of the earth to reflect the order in the heavens. Now, I can't say that I fully yet can say what, why, what, what that achieves, why it's worth going, going to the effort. Um, but clearly, if I'm right and, 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 and the alignments that I found genuinely are there, then clearly a lot of effort has gone into creating these and and therefore there, there must have been a reason there must have been a purpose there must have there must have been a justification that justified expending that that huge amount of effort but i've wrestled with this problem literally from from the beginning and even to this day i still find myself torn between the geometrical perfection of of these alignments and the staggering work that that must have gone in to create them and and the question of of, of why what why would mankind go to the trouble of arranging 10 mountains in a straight line? It, it seems impossible for a start, but it also seems monumentally pointless. So you know, I can't say that I've really got to the final answer in, on that. I, I would love it if I could, in many ways, it would be easier if I could just find mistakes in the alignments and a, a, abandon the whole thing. But um, I can't come to that conclusion, I'm afraid. No, no, no I, I completely understand. And it said it would be an incredible surveying project as well to even get this sort of machine, as you describe it, off the ground. It, it, from its very beginning, it's like you say, it has an immense scope to do this sort of work. Well, that's right. But which I mean, and there, are, there, are, of course, are many other examples. You know, here in England, of course, you know, we have all the stone circles, and I mean, the, these the places like Stonehenge and. Avebury and countless other places, and they really throw up the same set of questions, don't they? they it's like, well, why? What, what, why did they do that? At least, though, in the case of Stonehenge, we can at least see something that corresponds to what we would call work and effort. We can see that, okay, there's, there's, there's these big stones there. They've obviously been carted there and put up and, and arranged. With what I've discovered, there's nothing, in a sense, to see because it's it's the geometry is invisible. You can see the church and you can even see sometimes the alignments of the churches, but all you're seeing is three or four churches in a line. The geometry itself is invisible. So there's an extra, there's an extra barrier there to convincing yourself that, uh, that, that what you're seeing is genuinely there and, and not just a, you know, a fantasy or a figment of the imagination, but you know, perhaps to pick up something you asked earlier, like, what was it that convinced me that these alignments were genuine and not, not just random? There are many other degrees of ordering in, in these alignments. Um, for example, there's, there's situations where alignments are parallel to each other. There are situations where they're at right angles to each other. There's situations where three or four alignments intersect on a single nodal point. Uh, there's times when an alignment closely follows the path of a river. Um, there's over and over again, there's additional suggestions of order over and above these individual lines to the point where, um, to the point where I, I've, I've been unable to eliminate the explanation that, that these are all, are all random chance, that this, there seems to be something more going on here. Right. Um, you, you mentioned there a meridian that, um, runs along 10 mountain peaks. Right. And um, is that the Peshkardu meridian? That's right. Okay. That's the Peshkardu meridian. You... Now what, sorry, go on. No, you go ahead. Well, what I was going to say that, as you've said, one of the mountains of this 10 is called Peshkardu. The word Pesh means mountain in French. So it's Mount Mount Kardu, actually, if you pronounce it correctly, C-A-R-D-O-U. Now, what's fascinating about this word Kardu is that it, it's very close to the word cardo, C-A-R-D-O, which is simply the Latin word for meridian. That's what we get the word cardinal and such words as that from it in English. So 
Peshkar Doe really translates as Mount Meridian. And if you take that mountain with, on the map and, and draw a north-south line through it, you will find that it, it, it passes through, uh, in addition to Peshkado, another nine peaks without deviation, perfectly on this line, no fudging at all, and, and the line is exactly 180 degrees. And what's more, if you go to the most northern of those peaks, and by the way, it's not over very long. It's, it's over, I don't know, maybe five or 10 miles or so. If you go to the most northern of those peaks and look to the south, um, okay, the first one is Peshkado. But after Peshkado, the remaining eight mountains are ascending in height as you get further and further south. So that if you stand on Peshkado and look and, and see those mountains, they are stacked up above each other as, as you look to the south. Do you, do you, can you see what I mean? So that the, the mm -hmm. heights of them are not randomly distributed. They're they actually ascend in height. And so all this was done at night. It's not done during the day. It's done at night. It's done with fires on the peaks. So what happens if you're standing on Peshkar Doe and you have teams, nine other teams on the other peaks, and you look to the south, you see these nine points of light, these fires on the peaks stacked one above each other, pointing directly to, to the south. Uh, and then there are stars involved. Certain stars come up and align to that. So the stars, are, there's an, it's not a passive thing. It's an active thing. These alignments are used as astronomical sighting tools and they are constructed to align with particular stars at particular times. And the way I've come to understand it is there's some active event that takes place when the people are on these mountains with the fires observing the stars it's not just like a passive like for us to look at the stars is, is a passive thing we we observe the stars and they come but there's something more going on here with the way the stars are involved there's some kind of active involvement between the humans the stars the mountains the fires and the geometry and this now is starting to, to, to hint at, at, at the technology, if I can use that, that that's behind this, this machine. Again, if I, can, if I can use that word. Yeah. I mean, it, if you're a culture that has important events related to the observations in the night sky, and it would make sense that you might also have a, a communication network to be able to do things on a grander scale across a, a community, across a, the, the area that we're talking about here. That's that's exactly right. And I, I think this is exactly the, where it heads, that, that once you go to the trouble of starting installing a system like this on the high points, then there are multiple functions that, that this system can then perform for you from the extremely practical, which is communication and line of sight letting you know that there's an enemy invading from the other end of the valley and we need to get the horses horses ready uh right through to these to these to the astronomical um astronomical functions and no doubt other things as well so but in addition there's geometry there's pythagorean geometry and that these lines in often cases are laid out as large-scale Pythagorean triangles measured proper angles. So this adds another layer, a layer of complexity, which, again, just as we think we're starting to kind of get a grasp on what it might be doing, this throws a spanner into the works because if you've got a line of sign network, a line of sight network from high points in a region, you don't require any geometry to, to, to govern that. It doesn't, all you need to be able to is to see the other mountain, right? It doesn't matter if it's on a 45 degree angle. Um, so yet yeah, this sighting degree, this sighting network does have this geometric element. And, and again, these, these sighting lines fall into these patterns, fall in, into parallel lines and point at significant, significant, points on the horizon 60 degrees 90 degrees winter solstice sunrise so over and over and over these these lines are they're not only alignments they're not only line of sight they're not only pointing at the stars but they're also conforming to pythagorean geometry and they also fall out in whole numbers of of, of units of measure so there's there's all kinds of ordering going going on on here 
Mm. And I, mean, I, I don't know a lot about Pythagoras, but I do know that for him and his followers, uh, mathematics wasn't a simple tool. There was a there was a religious aspect to it, wasn't there? There was, there was a sacred element to to number. Indeed, and that's right. And and so for them, that the world was constructed through through number and harmony. So in 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 constructing this copy of the heavens on earth, this was part of their intent was to introduce elements of ordering like like their geometry into the geometry on the earth to to bring about this higher levels of ordering if, if geometry is seen as, as as somehow coming from from higher places from literally the fabric of the universe then if we lay out our human settlements using that geometry then then we imbue them with 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 the, the, the cosmic recipe for for inducing harmony and I think that's something like that was going on um, or some kind of thinking like like that was going on. Hmm. Um, you, you lived in, in that part of the world for, for a time. Um, right, yes. What was that like and how did it affect your research? Well, it was it was amazing. And, and it was I, I was living in Australia when I first began this and I became a little bit obsessed about the place, but I. I didn't visit. It was it was ten years after I started doing this before I had the opportunity to visit this this part of France for the first time, and it is absolutely wonderful part of part of the world. It's very beautiful, very rugged, uh, incredible history, layers and layers of history. This is this is the place where the Templars were. This is where, where the Cathars were. It's where the Troubadours were, and to this day. There's a very otherworldly sense. All, all these temple chateaux are, are still there. These wonderful 12th, 13th century, even earlier, you know, crumbling, incredible chateaus high on these peaks, and, and so it's, it's a very medieval feeling, even to this day. I I fell in love with it, and I ended up moving there from Australia, as you said. I, I lived there for, for for several years, met my wife there. Um, and it, it was extraordinary to be now living in this landscape, which I'd known up to that point just from from the map and from and from photographs. But now I was able to explore for myself uh, these alignments, and, and I did. And I, I visited all these mountains. I sighted for myself uh, the alignments. I walked through you know ancient forests, looking for old stones, and and I was able to convince myself that you know that. For example, these meridians in in the mountains—that they're not just an artifact of the map. You can see them with your own eyes. I could, I could take photos of them. I have photos of them. Uh, so there's an extra degree of convincing uh, to actually to actually be there and see this, see it, see it, see it for yourself. So so living there convinced me that there's certainly some extraordinary mystery in in the way that the landscape has been constructed in the past here. Hmm. You mentioned the the history of the area with uh, groups like the Templars and and the mm. Cathars. I mean, do you think that they were drawn to this place because of what we're talking about the the sacred geography, for want of a better expression? Well, I, I think it's definitely it's definitely part of the whole mystique of the area, and and, and definitely part of what they were doing. Uh, there's very, I mean, the, the Celts. If we go back. You know, to to pre-Christian times, that the Celtic tribes were living there, and they had there was there's some very interesting interactions between the Celts of the time and and Delphi. They actually went across and conquered Delphi and came back. So from the beginning, there's been this very interesting historical crossover between Delphi and and, and Greece and this area in, in the southern France, and then. There's also been a, a transplant of, of, of certain uh, lots of ideas. For example, the whole uh, Cathar sort of heretical background itself comes out of ideas that fr- from from that side of the world, the, the Bogomils and and some of these these old Gnostic heresies. So there, there's definitely been contact between the south of France and some of these older places and the other side of the Mediterranean over the time. 
If we now fast forward to the Templars in the 11th, 12th, 13th century, I'm certain that they were very much aware of this legacy of, of this star wisdom that had been woven into the landscape. And it's very clear at some of their places, for example, Montsegur, uh, which is one of the most famous of, of the Templar uh, chateaus there, where the, very famously the, 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 the Catholic Church had, there was a siege and they had the Cathars in there and the Catholic Church wanted the, to get the Cathars out and they ended up being burnt at the stake. It's a very tragic, tragic story. But Montsegur is, is, is very clearly, has very clear connections to the stars, has very interesting geometrical and geographical alignments. And French researchers have, have, have already written many, many books on, on this chateau and others and talked about their links to the stars and, and even alignments of the the chateau, it's of the architecture of the chateau to things like the winter solstice sunrise and other important astronomical things. So there, there's there's been research where people have already shown that these chateaus were definitely linked into some wider star wisdom. But separately, there's been this other research about all these alignments in the landscape, which has been connected to the Renle Chateau mystery, this whole set of stories about the guy that got that got rich and no one up before me is to the best of my knowledge has really put these together and, and and saying well look these these wider alignments in the landscape are actually connected to the same architectural features that have been found in the chateaus connecting them to stars connecting to, to, to the landscape so so in other words it's been known that the chateaus are orientated to stars and have certain architectural features. What hasn't been really appreciated is that the chateaus connect up with each other to create larger geometric networks, which are completely consistent, incidentally, with, with the alignments within the chateaus themselves. So you can follow these alignments and they point to other chateaus, which themselves are on geometrical alignments to other chateaus. So there's... You really you can pull you can pull this this thread pretty much there's a number of places you can pull the thread and it starts to starts to unravel it's clear that the templars were to me anyway it's clear that the templars were the inheritors of this of 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 this of this wisdom which has led to this uh this this geometry linked to the stars linked to the to the to the chateaus so i don't think they originated it but I do think that they that somehow some of this material had been passed down to them, and that they incorporated it into into what they were doing. Mm. As part of preparation for our conversation, I, I rewatched some of the Henry Lincoln Chronicle films, which are really really good. They're, they're, mm. they're super interesting. Um, they really are. And in the in the third one, that's about the Templars, and he Henry Lincoln talks about a pattern that you can see relative to venus and the connection between venus and and mary magdalene and there's a there's a strong presence of worship of her in this part of the world and if if you take the earth as the center of the solar system the there are there are five points in time over an eight-year period where the sun and the venus and earth are aligned and if you take them as points there's a pentagram in the landscape essentially and I mean, is is this the sort of thing we were just you were just talking about there? Well, well, now this is where this is where it started with Henry's book, and this was this was the key discovery that that on which this this book, The Holy Place, which came out in nineteen ninety one, uh, it was this so called pentagram of mountains that he'd found five mountains that he claimed which were at the perfect corners of a perfect pentagram, and this was the start of his discoveries of the alignments. In in many ways, for him, it was his his greatest discovery. And as you say, he tied it into the, the five-pointed star in the heavens, which Venus traces, and he then further tied it into Mary Magdalene. Now, Mary Magdalene, is, there's a very definite connection to Mary Magdalene in this area. That the church in Renle Chateau was actually dedicated to her. There's a whole connection between Mary Magdalene and, and this whole region. Um, but and I'll just, I, won't, I won't even talk about that. I'll just leave that aside. But if I come back to this Pentagon of Mountains, this was literally one of the first things that I wanted to check when I, when I read his book. And, is this really true? Are there really a pentagon of five mountains? And I have to say that, uh, in fact, he he has fudged that a little. That, that what he claims as 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 being exact is not exact at all. And in fact, in a later book, he he admits as much that he, oh, when I said exact, I didn't really mean exact. It's a little bit off. Um, and in in fact, when you actually go and visit it in the landscape, he really has 
you know, drawn a bit of a long bow there because two of the mountains aren't even really mountains. They're just sort of low, indistinct hills. And there's certainly these five peaks in, in, in the area. First of all, they're not an exact pentagram, but even putting that aside, you, there's no sense in the landscape of that Pentagon actually existing. You don't actually see it. There's much bigger mountains around. I mean, really, it, it was a fudge and and he wasn't. Uh, that I, I that was one of the things that I ejected pretty early on was was the pentagram of mountains and unfortunately I've I've got to say that uh, the pentagram the pentagram kind of siphoned Henry off down a particular uh, particular direction I don't really want to sort of go too far down this but Henry not to put too fine a point on it, was a bit obsessed with pentagrams. And I, I think if you've watched those, 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 those original documentaries, you, you can get a sort of a sense of that. Um, but I have to say that there aren't any pentagrams there. And I think he was trying to bring in pentagrams and without really wanting to speculate why, I, I think he had other reasons for wanting the pentagram to be the sort of answer to this. And it has to be said that that's been a real characteristic of this whole Renle Chateau mystery, but because the nature of the mystery is so amorphous, it's re- it's really hard to know really what is the mystery. Quite apart from what the que- what the answer is, it's it's pretty hard to nail down the question. But as a result, it's been a it's been a, a situation where people have brought to it all kinds of fantasies that they've wanted to project over this over this story, and. Really, that's been the main thing about the Renle Chateau story. It's a big grab bag of fantasies that people have have projected over. You can find the Renle Chateau section in your bookshop, and you can see all the books that have been written. And, and pardon my language, but they're all crap. I mean, they really are. Um, everybody's just got half an idea and had a rush of blood to the head and tried to come up with an answer to a mystery, and they're getting away with it because so far there hasn't been an answer. So people have come up with all kinds of crazy things over the years. Over the years, there was a book called The Tomb of God, which said that Jesus' body is buried under Peshkar Doe. There's been other books that have claimed that's buried supernatural things from the future, warning us against comets. I mean, people have come up with all kinds of wackadoodle stuff. Um, and I have to say that the pentagram of mountains of Henry Lincoln's falls into that category. <laughs> <laughs> Henry passed away last year. Um, and I was a bit more sort of cautious while he was alive. He has now passed away with all the greatest respect to him. And I do have great respect for him. But, um, you know, I think we owe people the, you know, the truth and many of the things that Henry came up. He, he was out of his depth with when, when he started dealing with this geometry. And he says so in this book. He, he discovered these, these alignments, but he really didn't know what, what was going on with them. So this is really why why I sort of signed up in the first place, because I could see that it looked like there might be a genuine mystery here, but it looked like no one really had a, had a good, good, clear idea of, of, of what was happening. So I set out and, and that's, yeah, that's what happened. Hmm. And I guess it's more dramatic, isn't it, if the alignments make a symbol in the landscape? Well, that's a very, very good point because, you know, us moderns, we don't have any conception of geometry in the landscape. That That's meaningless to us. We don't have any sensible idea in our current civilization and culture of laying out geometry in the landscape. It's pointless. We don't do that. So when we come and think about what the ancients were doing, we don't really have a prepared set of ideas with which to deal with this. And people rush to that simple idea oh well it's 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 a pattern it's 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 a pentagon or it's it's a it's a map with x marks the spot to to me all these are are clutching at straws there i mean why would you like i mean why would you lay out a pentagon of mountains like what what does does that do how does that help you Um, so I've, I've, tried, I've tried to go beyond this idea of looking for shapes, which has tended to be the way most of these, these books have, have ended up going. And in fact, Henry's original book is full of this. The pentagram's not the only one. There's a hexagram and there's all these other shapes. What I, the conclusion I came to was that the alignments are what this is about. The individual alignments are true and real and there. But as soon as we start to put them into shapes, I think we've lost the idea of what the ancients were up to here and we're trying to steer it into something that makes sense to us but doesn't really make sense to us so that's that's how i'd answer that mm, and i guess it's, it's a little ironic that 
some of the most relevant information the maybe the the best take on on what's happening here has come from pranksters <laughs> with the priory of Sion, like the the serpent rouge seems to be quite an important piece of the puzzle which considering the connection between john richer and the and the priory of Sion is um is a, a little ironic i suppose well 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 yes and you know the question's always been what what were they up to what were the prior sign up to and the the sort of unspoken assumption that people have tended to bring to this puzzle is that the prior sign knew something they had some big explosive secret and they were setting up these materials that they published in order to set a big puzzle for people to solve and if you can solve the puzzle and crack all the clues it'll lead you to some explosive secret that that's been the kind of sort of context that which people have approached what the prior of Sion have been doing and I I think that that's all I think we've all watched too many Scooby-Doo cartoons quite frankly I, I don't think that's what they were up to I don't think there's a buried special shiny thing waiting for someone to crack the code and discover i don't think that's it that's it at all i think it's much more subtle what they were up to i don't think they knew everything that was going on but they were you know i I don't know the answer i don't want to say what they were up to but they were doing something that makes more sense within a french literary context than it does within an english context they were it was kind of a a a literary practical joke in in a sense this is what i've come to that it's not funny like there's no there's no punchline to it but there's a sense within french literature in the 20th century there's there's a certain strand of surreal playful literature for for example there's i don't want to get too off topic here but, but there's a group in france called the ulipo which is one of the oldest literary societies um in, in France in the 20th century. And what they're into is playing with text uh, to create text in an unusual way. So, for example, they'll set a, 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 a set of rules. So you're given a word, you look it up in the dictionary, you count forward 10 words, and then that's the new word that you produce. So you start off with a piece of text, and then according to this algorithm, you produce another piece of text. Now, so this is a very peculiarly French interest is this idea of generating text through kind of surrealist games. And there's been no real equivalent of it in, in English literature. For example, there's a George, George Perec, who's a French author. He wrote an entire book without the letter E. Right now, now we don't do that in English because we don't really see the point, but there's very, that within French literature there's something that they love about this playful element of the language now that's not everything that's going on with this prior of Sion, but somehow it's 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 within there they were they were playing and i don't think they expected this thing to go viral quite like it did um, but when henry lincoln stumbled upon this material and then made these bbc documentaries it, it exploded. And up to then, it had been literally a, a you know, really a pretty of a, a local French mystery that, 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 that didn't really have, have much publicity. So I don't think the Prior of Sion ever actually intended to happen what actually happened. I don't think they intended to end up with the biggest bestseller of all time, Da Vinci Code, for example. I, I think they were playing around on the margins of some sort of clever French sort of jokes that, that don't really translate across the English that well. But seem very very clever and highbrow within a certain french literary literary culture so i think a lot of that's been misread by the english the english uh, side of this Renault chateau mystery and you did have your own um uh, adventures in decoding a text um, <laughs> with the with the serpent rouge and and its authorship um yes with it likely being Jean Richer, who who wrote it, yes. Can you just talk a little bit about about that process and how you came to that conclusion? Well, well, yes. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, it began with this inkling, which on itself didn't really amount to much. But this inkling that whoever writ, written this poem was familiar with Jung's works on alchemy. Now, that was a very small clue, but 
then over time, I started to get the idea that from reading, once I started reading Jean Rochet's works, slowly it started to dawn on me the possibility that, that he might have been involved. So I started looking uh, for something that would amount to a proof. And in the end, the thing that I found, which for me was was the moment that I, I, I was convinced I cracked the code, is a riddle within the poem. Now, the poem is about an unknown named protagonist, but there's a beautiful riddle within the poem which tells you who he is. It says, this friend, it says, his number is that of an unknown, of a famous seal. This friend, his number is that of a famous seal. Now, this is all in French, and people have tried to work out what this famous seal is. Well, maybe it's the seal of Solomon. Well, what's the number of a famous seal? Well, we can't work that. Well, how would this person have a number? So there's riddle, but nobody has ever really been able to figure out the answer to this riddle. And it all turns on what this famous seal might possibly be. Well, one day, and I described this in the book, and it was kind of a magic moment for me when I was in France and I was out walking, I was thinking about this. And I was thinking about the fact that Jean Rochet, his special subject in his academic life was this, this, this poet, this French poet, Gerard de Nerval, his name was. He died in 1855. He's a minor poet, but very, very you know, good one and a tremendous, tremendous writer. But as I was going for this walk, the idea popped into my mind, well, wait a second, maybe what he means is that the number of the name would be adding up the name, adding up the letters of the name, and maybe it's not about a famous seal, maybe it's the actual words themselves, a famous seal in the poem, because it's in French, and the two words are un so celebre, a famous seal. In other words, the idea occurred to me that maybe if I add up the numbers of the letters of unso celebre, the French phrase for a famous seal, maybe it's going to add up to the same number as Gerard de Naval. Well, I was out in the walk. I just about ran home to check this out. Got out a pencil and paper, added up the numbers of Gerard de Naval, added up the number of unso celebre in French. And to my absolute delight, it absolutely worked. They both add up to 134. So the number of his name, Gerard de Naval, is the number of a famous seal, literally the words a famous seal. Well, that was the moment to me that I was convinced that Jean Rochet wrote it. It was such an elegant riddle. The chances that it would work out that way and not be deliberate were essentially zero. So once once I'd cracked that riddle, it's I was able, I was willing to conclude that the protagonist of the poem was Gerard de Naval and the author of the poem was the, the academic who had devoted a lifetime to researching Naval, and that, and that was Jean Richet, who had separately discovered the zodiacs in 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 Greece. Um, but of course, he was French, and he was living in Paris, and he was living in Paris at exactly the same time as 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 this Renaud Chateau mystery was was happening, which was 1966-1967, and. He was involved in literary circles that brought him into contact with the Prior of Sion guys. And actually, since the book, I've actually been able to uncover further evidence to show that he actually definitely was in contact with these people. Um, and he was drawn into the mystery. He went down to the south of France and visited the, these sites, and he discovered the Zodiac around Red Le Barn, just as he discovered in Delphi and, and these other places. And... Uh, Everyone got really excited about it and they wrote this poem and and added a little bit of mystery to it and added it to their little mystery that they were creating and, and voila, there it was. Yeah, I mean, it must have been a great feeling to crack the, the code of the, of the poem, eh? <laughs> a real eureka moment. <laughs> it really was a eureka moment. I still get a thrill thinking about it to this day. Um, it's very, very clever poem and a very, very clever riddle to have everyone thinking of what is the famous seal, what is the famous, it's like a cryptic crossword, you know, and it turns out to be the words themselves rather than the seal that that, that, it's, that it's hinting at. So I, I just think it's such an elegant riddle that um, there's no going back. And 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 once it's cracked, that then it, then it, identifies Jean Richet as the author. And once he's been identified as the author, his lifelong obsession, he had two obsessions in his academic life. One was Gerard de Naval and the other was Zodiacs in the Landscape. And he combined the two of them by 
imagining Gerard de Naval in the landscape of Rennes Chateau, Rennes Le Barn, going for a walk around the landscape. And there's more to it than that. It, it, this is where it comes back to Jung. It, it, it's really a world journey that this, the poem is describing a world journey, a circumambulation where the, the protagonist takes a, a circular walk around a zodiac. And now this is the sort of thing that Jung talks about extensively in his books on alchemy. He talks over and over again about the alchemists constantly represented their work in terms of heroic voyages around sacred landscapes. And this is Psychology and Alchemy by Jung and his other work, Mysterium and Conjunctionis. This is essentially what those books are about. They're, they're about this notion of, of alchemy as being represented by the cosmic world journey of the hero, trans translating himself around the world in order to bring about harmony within the soul. This is Jung's idea about what is behind alchemy. And this is what inspired Professor Richet. And these are the ideas that he brought into this poem of La Serpent Rouge. So when you approach, when you encounter the poem of La Serpent Rouge for the first time in the context of the Rennes Le Chateau mystery, and people think, oh, well, it's, it, it's somehow this is clues to the treasure, and it's, I've got to tie it in with this other, these other wacky elements of the Rennes Le Chateau mystery, it, 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 it just remains completely impenetrable. But when you approach the poem as being an academic meditation on the ideas of Carl Jung about alchemy, in relation to the ancient idea of configuring landscape as a zodiac, combined with the French 19th century poet Gerard de Naval and his unique take on consciousness and unconsciousness, you have this very rich brew of ideas. And now when you read Le Serpent Rouge, you can see what, what, what the author was trying to do. And it's nothing to do with buried treasure, it's nothing to do with how Saunier, the priest, got rich. Uh, it's it's an investigation of this extraordinary ancient way of constructing the world and perceiving the world, which has been all but forgotten, but perhaps is starting to come back into into into, into people's uh, consciousness. So that that's where it's all heading. That that's that's where it's all heading. This wonderful rich brew of ideas um that were fascinating to this group of esoteric french literary uh, boffins in, in in the mid 20th century yeah absolutely well simon I, I really enjoyed the book thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast it's been my absolute pleasure thank you so much for for inviting me and uh and and, and asking these questions if people want to get a hold of a copy of the map and the manuscript and find out more about you and your work, how best do they do that? Well, it's available uh, on Amazon and also at the Great British Bookshop, which is online. Uh, it's available in paperback and in Kindle, and there's also a hardback uh, copy. And uh, I'd be very, very delighted if uh, people were able to slip out and purchase a copy. Might I also mention that I've, I've got a website at simonmmiles.com. I've also got a YouTube channel where I have some very nice high-resolution Google Earth Studio videos of these alignments. So I've constructed these videos flying over the landscape so you can actually see with your own eyes the, the, the meridians in the mountains. You can see the zodiac and you can see other things that I talk about in the book uh, flying over them with these very, very nice high-resolution uh, video. So you can find those on YouTube easily enough. Excellent. I'll put all that information in the show notes. Terrific. Thank you, Simon. Thanks very much, Rick. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Simon. The interview mostly covers the first section of the book, so there is much more within its pages for you to discover definitely get hold of a copy of the map in the manuscript if you enjoyed this episode. Please also consider rating it wherever you listen and sharing it on social media as it really helps some other sphere to grow and find new listeners. You can follow some other sphere on X and Mastodon and subscribe on most of the well-known podcast platforms. 
You can also support the upkeep of the podcast with a donation via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere.